Welcome to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We're your hosts, Natalie Kavorik, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska, and Tara Vanderdusen, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And together we bring you our professional farming opinions on a variety of trending topics in the ag and food space, so you can better understand our food system and feel connected to the hands that feed us. Happy Thursday, Discos. Uh, I hope everyone had a nice, long holiday weekend. Enjoyed that fourth, barbecued, hung out with family and friends, you know, did all the good stuff. I know. I'm still wearing my 4th of July outfit. I thought maybe you would like be festive too, but you are not. So I will just lead the team with the red, white, and blue today. I'm so excited to welcome you back though. I enjoyed Daniel, but I I really missed you. I was going to say, I thought Daniel knocked it out of the park. You were so nervous. You text me afterwards and like, I don't know. I think we're going to have to re-record. I don't know. All this stuff. And I was like, oh gosh, I'm sure it's fine. And it was better than fine. I'm sure all the discos would agree. I feel like Dan did such a good job with his two cents, but it's just fun to, I don't know, have a different interaction. I mean, I know you guys offline. And so it's kind of fun to see you guys interact that way. And like, for people to get to know our husbands in the way we know our husbands, I guess, maybe. Yeah. And I want to say thank you to all the discos who commented, sent us messages. Like it was so amazing, like seeing how much everyone loved Daniel and like supported him and uh, sent him encouraging things. He was really nervous. um, And I was really nervous, which in my defense, you didn't hear all the edit out stuff. (laughs) Maddie was live and even she was like, there's going to be some edits. But no, he did good. I just felt like I had to carry a lot of the conversation. So I'm excited excited to have you with a little bit more back and forth. Like Daniel's response to lab grown meat was like, it's terrible. I hate it. And I, that was like the end of the conversation. I mean, we definitely do talk a little bit more in our husbands. It's funny because in real life, Luke definitely talks more than I do, but put me in front of like a camera or a microphone and I don't shut up and Luke kind of just <laughs> lets me take the lead. I hinted on my social media about the break and I want to just, um, I guess highlighted a little bit because it did feel like a really long time. That's the weird thing about podcasting was like one episode, but you know this when you missed your one episode, it feel, it's like a two week break, which in terms of social media and sharing is forever. So one, it felt like a really big break, but two, I just wanted to, I guess, highlight maybe um, social media health and taking that time and space if you need it. I had a really emotional weekend as a parent that weekend. Tara knows this. Tara knows why I asked, you know, Dan to fill in for me. And I still showed up on my Instagram and like Twitter. And it really highlighted how you guys, you are not getting the full picture ever of anyone when it comes to short form content. Because I mean, I had to show up. I had brand partnership content and just other things. And it's really easy to throw up like a a photo in your stories, you know, when you're having a bad day. But the thought of coming on the podcast and talking for a full hour and like carrying conversation and energy and mood and all of that, I was like, I cannot do it. So this is your reminder that you guys are never getting the full picture when it comes to short, like short form content and social media. Just remind yourselves on that. And then this is your permission uh, to give yourself grace if you are sharing online or you are consuming it and you feel like it is affecting your mood. Um, You guys, you have to put your mental health first. Yeah, I think that's such a good reminder. Like you said, it is a job. So you had to like get up and do something. And then like the podcast, we always like figured it out with Daniel. But I think that allowing yourself those breaks is so important. So when this airs, we will be one day away from leaving for our trip for Montana. So I need to check in with you. We've talked about it on the podcast before. You are... <laughs> 
nervous about horseback riding and wearing hats and freezing to death in Montana. You guys wouldn't even believe the text I am like filtering through from Tara uh, packing for Montana right now. So Tara, give us our update. How are we doing? I'm pretty much in full-blown panic mode. I'm actually going to leave a day early and go to Albuquerque and head up some stores and buy a rain jacket and hiking boots and (laughs) I'm like doing all the things. You keep teasing me that I'm not going to be cold, but I have like checked in with all of my friends and they're like, yeah, you're going to be freezing. It was like almost 110 here last week. So just the thought of sleeping in a tent at 40 degrees makes me like freeze to death. You guys, this is going to be such a wild trip. Like what did I sign up for bringing Tara (laughs) on a backpacking like trip camp herding sheep in Montana? I mean, I feel like I'm not completely hopeless. Like I do camp and go out and like, I don't know. I just, it's all new experiences for me. Like I feel like every time you camp or do something like it's in a new place, like I just, I don't know what to expect. And so I'm, I think I'm building it up more in my mind that it's going to go terrible and it's not, it's probably going to be completely fine. I am so excited. I'm so excited. I also haven't seen you in like two months, so I'm really excited to see you. It's right before your birthday, so it's going to be a blast. I keep forgetting. Do you forget about your birthdays the older you get? No, today's the third that we're recording on, and I already was like, oh, it is only five months until my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. But I'm guessing you're forgetting that your birthday. Yeah, it just like the other day randomly, I was like, oh, it's July. Like my birthday's coming up, but I guarantee you I'll forget about my birthday probably. I do want to circle back because before I took my mental health leave of absence for one week, um, I had alluded to Father's Day and Luke having an unconventional Father's Day. And I was like, oh, I'll share it next week on the podcast. And then I didn't show up on the podcast. (laughs) So it does feel a little delayed bringing this up. But at the same time, I want to bring this up because it connects with our Canadian followers. So the reason why Luke had a very unconventional Father's Day is he was not here. It was me and the littles alone. And I never share this on social media because I don't want anyone to know when Luke is gone. So I actually like will save stories up with Luke in them. And it's like he's present and stuff. So no one really knows when Luke is gone. But him and Tad went up to Canada. It was their first time going to our cabin. We officially bought a cabin in Canada And I wanted to share that because I feel like we do have a lot of Canadian listeners and I feel like very connected to them now because we're going to be spending, the plan is to spend a lot of time in Canada. When is your first trip up there? Well, so I went with Luke one time to look at it, obviously before. And then he went this last time and he's going to go up another time at the end of fall. And then we actually have like friends who are going up. And so they've been taking stuff for us and doing um, some work. But I don't know if I'll go up again this year. I told Luke that I think some improvements need to be made (laughs) to it before I will be spending time up there. But I also feel like I need to go up to help like make a game plan for next summer of like what we need and changes we want to make. And like if we're doing any like remodels and stuff like that. So I'm wondering if I'll actually have to make a fall trip up despite me not wanting to go until, you know improvements have been made. Yeah. I think that um, you thrown me under the bus about Montana. I'm going to do the same about your cabin (laughs) in Canada. You'll be fine. It'll be fine. I mean, you guys are the first couple we're inviting up. So are you ready to go in the shape it's in? I'm ready. Let's do it. (laughs) You are so full of it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right. Do you want to do the word of the week right now? Yeah. Let's do the word of the week and then we'll get us started. Okay. The word of the week is brazen. Have you heard of it? Yes. I like it. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'm trying to think how I would describe yeah. it. Brazen would be my, this is my thing. And then you can give the definition. Brazen would be like, he just like went at that really like brazenly. I don't know if you can turn it into an adjective or adverb, but like to be kind of like rough or I don't know. What does it say? Yeah. Bold. Oh, okay. Bold and without shame. He went about his illegal business with a brazen assurance. Oh, nice. Uh, I actually used our yeah. word of the day from last week, yesterday, just in total natural conversation. The vamoose. There was a storm coming on the lake, and I was like, Daniel, we got to vamoose on out of here. And he was like, <laughs> uh, Did he recognize? Yes, he was like, You're an idiot. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so we are today, episode 99, and it is, as always, brought to you by Case IH. Uh, something kind of fun about Case IH is this weekend we went to a 4th of July parade, and there was a super, super old farm all Case IH tractor in it, and I, both Dan and I were like, oh, Case, like, yay, we love it. Dana was like taking pictures of the old tractor. So we just love our sponsors, Case. Uh, to the men and women at Case IH, farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. You can get to know those farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring that perspective into everything Case IH does by visiting their website, builtbyfarmers.com, to see their stories and even share your own. So I grew up in Montana for everyone. Whenever I hear Case IH, I think of our college football team there, Montana State University, because Case IH sponsors, um, well, I don't know, some form of athletics, I guess. And so they have the Case IH red zone, which is like the last 10 yards before the touchdown zone. And so whenever you get in there, the announcer's like, the red zone in case any, I'm not going to do it right now because I just embarrassed myself. But if I have any Bobcat listeners, they know exactly what I'm talking about and they're playing the way the announcer says in his head too. And so that's the first thing I think of whenever I hear Case IH. Oh, that's really cool. <sighs> yeah, it is. I feel like, uh, just apologizing to the discos, I feel like two weeks off is a lot. I feel like I haven't talked in two weeks. So if I mumble through or stumble through this podcast, you guys just um, give me a little grace here. All right. Today's first article you guys need to know is titled, Shein is sending influencers to promote its China factory. Mega successful Chinese fast fashion retailer Shein, long plagued by allegations of terrible conditions for workers and most recently forced labor allegations, appears to have rolled out a new PR strategy, sending Instagram influencers on sponsored trips to China to tour a high-end Shein supplier warehouse. The tour, followed by an epic night cruise to admire... Ooh, I cannot say that city's amazing skyline is prompting content creators to regurgitate company lines to their hundreds and thousands of followers. I feel like I'm not that surprised that Shein is in the news about this. I mean, they've been problematic for a while. Like this is not a shock. Obviously what's shocking is that these influencers, I think decided to team up with Shein and go tour. Um, I got on one of like the main influencers Instagram this morning before this. And she has actually come out with two live videos saying she has cut all contact with Shein and that she made a mistake and she didn't do enough research and she should have looked into it more. All the content from her being in China is gone. And it's just like these two apology videos. Yeah. So you were actually hesitant to cover this one. I brought this one to our Trello board. You felt like it was a little bit out of our ag and food lane, which I'd have to agree. So for everyone tuning in, wondering why we are covering Shein, which is, you know, a fashion company. I thought, as you mentioned, it was very interesting, one. But two, you know, we talk a lot about 
lot of big picture issues that have to do with sustainability. And I think fast fashion is part of that conversation. And a lot of focus is always on like the energy industry and, you know, transportation and landfills and all these things. And I do feel like fast fashion kind of like has always skated on by they vamoosed the conversation. (laughs) I actually was not introduced to it through a news article. I saw it on my Instagram, like for you page that one of the influencers reels. And then I like backtracked through all of that. I was like, wait, she's doing she in. And then I paced together that they were on this trip. And then I pieced together that there were other influencers. And I went down a very <laughs> hefty rabbit hole of consuming all their content, their stories. And I do think it's interesting, as you said, one of them has removed everything she's put up. And some of the other ones have left up all their uh, content. And they seem to still be standing by it. And honestly, their audience hasn't had a problem. Like I went through one of the influencers content and they were like, happy birthday. We love seeing you and your husband there. So it's very interesting to see also how like the audience you have, your community you've built could play a role in dictating um, obviously the outcomes of it, I guess. That is so fascinating because this girls that I was on, like her community obviously did not feel that way. They were, even her lives, they were like, this isn't a good enough apology. You should have done better. So I really think you should have known your audience and how they would react to it because I mean, I mean, that's the most important part of being an influencer. I feel like it's being in touch with what your audience wants from you and your community wants. Uh, and so this one, clearly, she really missed the mark. I guess diving a little bit more into the fast fashion portion of it, I pulled out, I guess, a, a general definition of it. Fast fashion is a large sector of the fashion industry whose business model relies on cheap, rapid, and large-scale production of low-quality clothing. Um, So usually consumers of it are younger people, obviously, because it's going to have a lot to do with the size of your pocketbook. And they also found women are more opt to shop fast fashion. So some of our male listeners, (laughs) our older male listeners are not the target audience for this this, uh, article, I guess. Yeah, some crazy statistics to kind of get into this. According to the UN, fast fashion is the second largest user of water and it is responsible for 10% of total global emissions. And I think this is the reason like it's so big of a deal right now is because in the last 20 years, we have increased how much clothing we consume by 400%. Like this is not a small change. Like in the last 20 years, we have rapidly started getting cheaper made clothing and cycling through it. Like they had some of the lead times, which is the time it takes for like a brand to decide like on a design and then get it to stores. And some of them, it was as fast as two weeks. I think the longest one I saw was like H&M was eight weeks. You're talking like really quickly. Like I've seen things that are like TikTok um, sayings on t-shirts and you're like, that's going to be gone in a week. So you brought up a couple points. First is the reason why fast fashion is starting to come in attention is because of its global, you know, footprint, like right, the emissions it's having. And as you mentioned, sources quote, which I found this very hard actually to talk about fast fashion from a number standpoint, because it seems there are very few studies looking into this. A lot of the numbers seem to be from one example, and then every single blog or article just quotes that one. And they actually very quite a bit. So I saw like you quoted the eight to 10% of global carbon dioxide output is due to fast fashion, which if we're talking, you know, global numbers, and that's an accurate number, we have to remember that agriculture is coming in at 14%. So uh, very comparable from like, 
I feel like a, you know, output standpoint. But in addition to the emissions, as you mentioned, it's coming under a lot of heat for the waste. Like the, so the beginning of, you know, the cycle for it, but also the end, like we waste so much of our clothing. I found quotes as nearly three fifths of all clothing produced end up in either incinerators or landfills. I found a stat that said 87%. Again, they were varying. So I'm not going to like stand behind these statistics and say that they are hundred percent accurate, but I do think it's safe to say that like only a fraction of what's, you know, being manufactured is actually getting recycled. A lot of it is ending up in waste. And then to loop in the third part of this conversation, I think that I guess fast fashion is, you know, an important conversation when it comes to our future and moving forward is it's tied to the fossil fuel industry and how a majority of clothing now, especially in the fast fashion world, is coming from, you know, plastics, essentially. The elastane, nylon, acrylic, um, all of those, polyester, which is like one of the biggest ones, those are all going to be, you know, made from fossil fuels, essentially. Yeah. And on that note, uh, when you wash clothing that is like synthetic materials, the microfibers can end up in the water and ultimately in the ocean. 35% of the microplastics in the ocean are from synthetic fibers, and it's equivalent to 50 billion plastic bottles. So, I mean, it's a major issue in our oceans as far as the microfibers go. But then going back to the natural like fabrics, one question that I had that I couldn't figure out is obviously natural fibers come from like wool or cotton. And so they were including the fact that like cotton uses a lot of water. And so that is an, you know, an quote unquote issue. And it made me wonder from the emission standpoint, does cotton get put in agriculture's emissions or do they get put in fashion's emissions? Like it's kind of like where, how do they divide what emissions like are for which reasons? Does that make sense? I also just spent a lot of time there because obviously last year we recorded our pilot of the docuseries and we looked at cotton. And then this week we're going to Montana to look at wool production like sheep. Um, and so it's just kind of funny that we say I actually am taking back my statement that I was like, why are we covering this? It isn't about ag. But when you think about it from that standpoint, it is about ag. And in my mind, like I'm like, looking at this fast fashion thinking, let's get away from the synthetic materials and support agriculture in cotton and wool and leathers and all of those things instead of supporting, like you said, fossil fuels that are the microfibers or microplastic fibers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I think of fast fashion, a lot of times I do think of synthetic leather or vegan leather, um, you know, pleather versus leather. All right. Is that all we've got on that one? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so before we get into our second article, we want to highlight another one of our sponsors, um, Good Ranchers. And it's kind of funny because just last week we talked about, you know, the FDA approving lab-grown meat and specifically chicken. And I just feel like now more than ever, like we have to be supporting our ranchers and like making sure we're getting real good quality beef and chicken. And I just feel like Good Ranchers does such a good job of that. You can get chicken as well promise no lab grown meat coming from them. Um, and you can use our code this month, discover for $30 off your box. Um, and you can check them out at goodranchers.com. Yeah, you guys, we really love this sponsor. Um, so if you are looking for a place to buy your meat direct from the consumer, they obviously source from a couple different ranches. They work, um, 
you know, with it's not just one ranch, I guess, but you are still supporting U.S. Um, all everything is grown, harvested. The whole supply chain is here in the U.S. So you can feel good about that. And yeah, code discover gets you $30 off and um, hit up the barbecues and make good ranchers a part of your summer routine. You guys, that is American meat delivered. Good ranchers.com. All right, moving on to our second article title, South Florida community ordered to quarantine after invasive snail sighting. An invasive species of giant African land snails has been spotted in South Florida, triggering authorities to issue a quarantine zone for parts of Broward County to try to stop its spread. These snails are one of the most damaging snails in the world. They are one of the most invasive species. They can also pose a um, health risk to humans because they carry a parasite called rat lungworm which that sounds about as appetizing as <laughs> your guys' discussion of lab-grown meat last week. Um, but that form of lungworm can cause meningitis. So it's twofold. It's not only potentially very damaging to like the ecosystem that Florida has going on, could also be very damaging to the people that live in Florida. So I have two directions I want to go. And the first is a little bit about them is they can be as big as a man's fist and they produce uh, 1,200 eggs a year and they don't need a mate to reproduce. They are like both male and female. Um, and then how did we like get here? Well, the first one came to the United States in 1969 and someone brought it as a pet and then they spent almost $3 million eradicating it over like the next six years. It They had almost 20,000 snails at that point. And then we saw it again in 2011 and it was eradicated in 2021. The cost for that was 23 million. And it makes me wonder, I mean, 2021 wasn't that long ago. Did we completely eradicate it or were there some still like hanging around and we missed some and now they're coming back? Like not a very big gap between 2021 and now. I thought that was so interesting because as you said, when you first see this article, you're like snails, what? And then to read that they have dealt with this problem twice now, like you said, once in the 60s, uh, which took them the decade to eradicate them then. And they did think they eradicated and then they got reinduced again, reintroduced again in just, you know, 10 years ago. And so it's like, this is their third round of battling these massive snails. Glad I am not a Florida resident. Uh so to get rid of them, they have to use like a pretty heavy pesticide. The properties have to be treated 26 times and then be snail free for 19 months before it's considered eradicated. And you said, glad I'm not living in Florida. Yeah, there's a thousand in North Tampa and my father-in-law lives um, and mother-in-law live part of the year in like South Tampa. And so I'm going to tell him to keep an eye out and like watch out for giant snails eating his stucco. Can you imagine? I can't even... I mean, eight inches long, two pounds. That's so big. I don't even want to know what my reaction would be if I happened to stumble upon one of these little bad guys out there. Um, also, you talked about how unappetizing it is. In some countries, they're actually eaten for food. They're 50% protein. And to compare that, beef is only 17% protein. And then a lot of people use them for pet food. And oh, that was, I know. <laughs> We've been picking some very unappetizing <laughs> topics lately. I'm sorry if you guys are listening and like eating breakfast or snacking. Don't mind our topics. We'll try and be a little more conscientious of that. One of the other things, though, that I thought was really interesting is that the headlines around these snails all talk about quarantine. And obviously now it is imprinted in my brain when I see the word quarantine to think of the extent we went to, you know, a couple years ago during COVID. 
So I was like, wow, these people have to like stay at home and quarantine for these snails. But that is not what is going on, you guys. So if you see the quarantine, it just means that it's illegal for the residents to move the snails or any of the regulated items like plants, soil and debris, yard waste, building materials. I'm glad you cleared that up because I actually kind of had questions about that as well. It is, I think one of the things is it's an international trade issue because it's a pest. And so like anything going in and out of ports or out of the bay, like they're going to be really strict right now in Florida, um, kind of on the quarantine note of like making sure you don't have any soil or you're not like taking a plant home or like anything that could like have this spread further into other places. It reminds me of like Hawaii when you fly in and out of Hawaii. Have I told you the last time we left Mexico, I we were going through where you can't bring any fruits or vegetables. And I was like, duh, like we are in ag. We know you can't do that. And the dog comes right up to Annalise. <laughs> the dog walks right up to Annalise, sniffs her backpack, sits down. Annalise had like a full-sized melon in her backpack. <laughs> I was like, great. Where are those oh people? Oh, gosh. Leave it to kids to do things like that. (laughs) The last thing I'll mention is I kind of, I guess, looked into Florida's ag economy. Like I thought it'd be interesting to see what they're top producing. I don't know. What do you call it? The top three goods that Florida produces for their economy is number one, oranges at 73% of, I think that's nation, the nation's oranges. Uh, This is what I thought was super interesting foliage plants for indoor use. 61% comes out of Florida. I have never even thought of like how those plants come to be. I've never even given it two thoughts. I would have never thought really about that either. Like who's growing them? Daniel actually did work in a greenhouse in college. That was his college job. And it was like getting plants like at a major warehouse that would then go to like Walmart. They were like the step before it. And he said it was you know, something piece of agriculture you don't think about every day is like growing plants for people to have in their houses. Do you have house plants? Are you a house plant person? I am a house plant person. I'm not a huge house plant person now because our we live in a little farmhouse and it gets actually terrible lighting. And so I feel like it's just a hard battle. So I only have a few. I feel like if I had really good lighting though, I would have a lot more house plants. All right. So before we do the third article, I want to talk about our giveaway. We do our monthly giveaway for if you guys share our podcast to your social media channels, to your stories, or if you leave us a review, give us those five stars. We love to see it. Uh, every month we pick one winner that gets a like goodie bag from Discover Ag with all of our favorite things, tons of really great handmade things, small businesses, like try to support really cool companies in that giveaway. So if you love our podcast, please share it, share it with a friend, share it with a family member. It helps us grow and uh, find new people, new audience, new community to be able to listen to Discover Ag. I have to say, even though I wasn't a part of last week's episode, I still very much felt like I was there. One, because you did such a good job of Natalie advocating, (laughs) playing Natalie advocate. Um, But two, I felt like we were on the same way, like because last week you talked about the scenic views that people put in or, you know, tag us in for the story shares for Discover. And I had been wanting to talk about there was a story tag where someone was on some sort of vacation, I'm assuming. They were, it was a very um, warm destination. They were lying by a pool and they tagged us. And the, I guess, written slogan or text that they wrote on the story said, You can discover anywhere. And I was like, That is a heck of a slogan. 
you can discover anywhere. So love to see that one put on some, um, you know, stories wherever you guys are letting us know that it's fun to discover anywhere. I feel like I see that as a t-shirt in our future. Mm-hmm. All right. Moving into the third and last article, you guys title Senate committee holds hearing on Amazon deforestation cattle supply chain. The U S Senate finance committee recently held a hearing regarding cattle supply chains and deforestation of the Amazon, particularly examining multinational meat company, JBS. So it was actually a senator from Oregon, a Democratic senator from Oregon that led this committee, and it was a two-year investigation of the ongoing environmental impacts of JBS. And I think it's worth noting that JBS had made some really big promises to do better. They were claiming that there would be no cattle involved in deforestation by 2025, and they're not anywhere close to that. Actually, by 2023, so this year, they were supposed to have no cattle, direct cattle they owned involved in deforestation. And then they had two more years to work with their like indirect suppliers and like very little progress has been made. Yeah. So that's the first thing I think I want to highlight. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, <laughs> to give a little slack to these like end of supply chains, we we have talked about this a little bit before. But we've talked about it in like the environmental footprint, I guess, aspect of it, because they actually have the lowest part of it. And I just do think they're up a little bit up against a little bit because they do have like, as I mentioned, direct control over certain things. And then they still have to combat like indirect control. So I do think that that is like a challenging portion of it. Not that they've like doing their best and they're like, well, we just, you know, it's the indirect that we are struggling with. I just think that that's something that we don't often think about is, um, I guess the control thought of in that way. Yeah. And they've set up, I think it said 18 quote unquote green offices that will help farmers comply that they're supposed to be giving support to farmers and teaching them and giving them resources. It brought that full circle for me this week of thinking when we decide to cut agricultural production, cattle production in one place like Ireland, what is that effect on the Amazon rainforest or or other places? Like lots, there's lots of other places. I mean, Brazil has the second largest uh, herd of cattle, second only to India. And so are we just pushing more cattle to Brazil when we do something like that? Oh, 100% people should definitely be weighing that into the conversation because more than likely, yes. Um, but on that note, and this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, about like the direct and indirect, I think it's interesting, the quote from Weller, who uh, Jason Weller is the global chief sustainability officer at JBS. He said, as we have learned, simply blocking farms with deforestation concerns is not enough because these blocked farms will continue to produce cattle and other agriculture commodities that will find another way to enter regional and global food supply chains. So it's almost like his statement was almost an example of like mini leakage because he's like, we can't just shut it off here because those are still going to continue to like operate. Yeah. Another thing that it reminded me of is when we had Jack Bobo on the podcast, like last summer, I mean, it's been like over a year, I think now since we've had him on and it was about how like progress in agriculture goes hand in hand with conservation. Like the more you can do with less, like the more land you can put into conservation. And so again, like the Ireland thing, like by doing that, removing those cattle that may have been really efficient, really high producing cattle, we're like compounding or we're removing land that could have probably gone into conservation. So a few, I guess, um, points on the Amazon. It is the single largest tropical rainforest on the planet. It covers about 40% of South America. Um, Obviously, it's a big deal because of the biodiversity there. There's a ton of, you know, 
plant species, bird species, fish species, mammals. Um, also something that people don't think about is the people that live there. There's like tribes that live there. So it's a huge economic engine for South, you know, America and their economy. It plays a role in resources and medicine. And then obviously, you know, something that we refer to it a lot about is like the carbon cycling it has to do with. So, I mean, I think everyone knows how important the Amazon is, but just as reminders, um, this is what we're, you know, talking about when it comes to deforestation and kind of cutting it down and um, I guess ruining it essentially. And I think one of the hard things is the sheer size of it. Like it talked a little bit in this article about how it is hard to um, have like accountability and to like really manage this supply system within the Amazon. And the Amazon itself is actually governed by an independent constituent state system within Brazil. So it's kind of like its own thing. But like when you look at the size, you're like, yeah, that's pretty hard to govern. And when you're talking about like that, there's tribes and there's like areas of it you can hardly get to. Like it's not a very straightforward system of how to like fix this. So talking about governance, I have two things I want to bring up. When you Google what is the main cause of deforestation in Brazil, it obviously comes up with, you know, clearing of land for agriculture and livestock. If you go, I went to amazonconservation.org and it actually listed a ton of other things. And one of them was lack of governance. So they were saying that the, you know, the reasons for deforestation are one, the unchecked agriculture expansion, two, the illegal and unmitigated gold mining that takes place there, uh, three, the illegal logging. For poorly planned infrastructure, five fires, and then six lack of governance. So um, I'm not denying the agriculture livestock, but there are a few other things to consider as well. A stat that really surprised me was that 75% of Brazilian beef is actually consumed in Brazil and only 25% is exported. And of that 25%, 2% is going to the US. Yeah, I love that fact. I actually tried to make sure it was accurate because that came from Weller when he was testifying. So I like want to think that he wasn't committing perjury, but I also wanted to like double check and just make sure that only 2% is coming to the U S and you guys, it is confusing out there trying to like understand some of the like percentages and the way the websites talk about like commodities and marketing and importation and exportation. It's not my expert of field. So I'm going to just stand by what Weller said, which I think is something to be talked about more that a majority of beef is used domestically for Brazil. Um, I know China is the number one importer of it. I think we were behind it, but if we're only, you know, consuming 2% like, and we're the second importer, um, I think that like is a big part of the conversation for Brazil's, you know, beef, I guess, story. And so I think my last thing is kind of like, where do we go from here? Well, this committee wants us to pass similar laws to the EU that would have more traceability and like, I hate to say it, like a label that says non-deforestated meat or whatever. They had some slogan they were going to use. And so they want us to pass similar laws to EU. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like you said, it does seem like a really big topic to tackle or problem to tackle. One of the things I learned about it, which I was not aware of that I think is super interesting, is that deforestation is kind of tied directly to like political offices and who is the president at the time. I found a crazy graph, you guys. I'm going to share it on uh, for sure Discover Stories and maybe we'll work it into a post. But it shows the last, um, how many years is it? 
12 years of the different um, presidents at the time and where deforestation increased the percentage of it, where it decreased. Um, And this article I was reading talked a lot about how when President Bolsonaro was in office, that is, he's been in twice now, I think, and both of them have been correlated to No, he's been in once, and it was when we saw the most drastic increase in deforestation. And the president now is President Lula, and he has been in before. And in his last term, he took a huge stance against deforestation, and he actually cut down it quite drastically. You'll see the graph drop. And he is who is current, and so he is rolling out a lot of efforts, um, laws, just changing a lot of things about deforestation. That is is actually when I was reading this, one of the things I wish I like knew someone from Brazil. I'm curious how like local people, how Brazilians feel about this, that the fact that their land is a point of like global controversy and that everyone feels like they can weigh in and tell them like what they have to do with their land. Yeah. I mean, we have to have one Brazil listener for, <laughs> for Discover Ag. I'd imagine please message in or if you know someone that could weigh in, we'd love to hear it. I think one. that's all we have for today. So thank you guys for listening to Discover Ag this week, where uh, every week we discover something new in agriculture, and we will see you guys next week. 